Marianne Demasi is a journalist who showed that dietitians in Australia were taking money from the breakfast manufacturers to promote their products, right? And and that is disgusting. That they should be just obliterated as an organization. It came out, I'm sure you would have heard that, the last couple of weeks, for the first time ever, our children are predicted to not live as long as us. And it's because of modern life. As I say, Andrew, lift heavy shit. That becomes more important as you get older, right? That's the big message. Optimize performance through adapting your physical, psychological, and emotional state. Hello, it's Andrew May, and welcome to the Performance Intelligence Podcast, the podcast about all things human performance. Paul Taylor is an exercise physiologist and nutritionist and a neuroscientist who is currently completing a PhD in applied psychology. He is the director of the Mind Body Brain Performance Institute, where he delivers resilience, leadership, and executive performance workshops. Paul is also host of the Mind Body Brain Project podcast and the recently released book called Death by Comfort. Backed by popular demand, Paul. The podcast that we did on fasting is the number one listened to podcast of all time. Either you've been sending that to your Irish mates and saying, just listen to this to put this poor guy's podcast up, or you totally hit a mark. We know you totally hit a mark. Your book has hit a mark. I got you back. I want to talk about the book, but also what else you're doing in life. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me back again. Um, I obviously paid you enough money to get me back on. Well, it's a good book the awful start wouldn't it it's a shit book yes that's right <laughs> but i don't know many what other people you, what were you thinking <laughs> actually zoom in behind your champ i can see the books for anyone watching this on youtube paul's sitting and when we talk all the time you're behind your books it makes you look even smarter than you are so maybe if you've got a better book someone behind it no no it's a great book it's selling like hotcakes it's controversial too which i like and you've done a lot of interviews so i want to start with something that you maybe haven't been asked mm-hmm. question one what response from the book or what bit of content in the book has most surprised you and question two what response or lack of response has frustrated you is there something in the book that you wrote and you thought this is poetic beauty and you doubled down on it and no one's commented on it so first of all which bit has surprised you which bit has either disappointed or frustrated you I think the one that has surprised me in terms of lots of feedback is the cold exposure, right? And so that one is people are like, oh, Jesus, but oh, it's interesting science. Maybe I should start that. That should word comes up a lot, right? The one that's frustrated me and that has frustrated me for years and years and years is around nutrition and my highlighting the health risks of ultra processed foods which are being actively promoted by our government and by the uk government and other governments with this particularly in this country this bullshit health star rating that we have that is totally misleading consumers and just all the dodgy stuff that goes on behind the scenes and why this is not front page news about how ultra processed food is killing us and it's killing our kids Small talk, small talk, small talk. Ladies and gentlemen, 
boom, there's no foreplay with Paul Taylor. Let's get yeah, you, you, you know, life is too short for sort of flirting around the edges. Well, I, 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 I like that you've gone on this, and I get it. We often say we're the brother from another mother from Ireland. I'm, I'm actually a Paddy. My grandfather's Patrick Flynn, so there's got to be yeah. some genetic I knew there was link. something I liked yeah. about you. I couldn't put my finger on it up until now. Well, actually, also, totally off script, but in last year, out of our top five podcast on performance intelligence, four were Paddy's. You. Oh, there you go. Kieran Gribben, your NXS rock star, lead singer of NXS, Dr. Tom Buckley, um, and Padraig O'Sullivan. Gee, like I'm oh, surrounded by go. patties. Yeah. Like, so going hard, and you do, this is the introduction. Our genome has not changed in over 45,000 years, but the world has changed enormously, and there are multiple mismatches with modern life. Homo sapiens evolved and thrived because we could hunt down prey with the tools we made at just adding your accent to it. Yes. <laughs> Ant, a range of natural foods from the environment and led highly physical lives necessary for the proper functioning of our bodies and brains. Exposure to cold and heat caused our ancestors to upregulate critical stress response genes, which made us more resilient. Now our thermoneutral environments are making us soft. There'd be a bit of swear words in there as well, I believe. Oh, modern, yes. Modern humans are the most, get this, overweight, depressed, medicated and addicted cohort of adults that has ever lived yet life has never been so good. Clearly, something is wrong. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Yes, thank you. Clearly, something is wrong, right? There, there is no debating that the facts that are out there that we are. And, and, and in fact, it came out, I'm sure you would have heard that the last couple of weeks, that for the first time ever, our children are predicted to not live as long as us. And it's because of modern life. We've been adding 2.2 years. I know Dr. Tom and I have been talking about this exposure theory Tom's been talking about. And he said this will happen in the next five years. And he was right. We've been adding 2.2 years per decade, I think, for the past 40, 50, 60 years, like 2.2 years extra per right. decade with improvements in health, education, knowledge, you know, stress, third world countries, hygiene, food. And it's a tipping point. Three main things. It's believed lack of movement, number one. Two is over-stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, hollow smartphones. Uh, and, and the third one is shit food, which is so on the, the, the content of what you write about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say, number two, overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system in conjunction with lack of training of the stress response system, right? And that's critical. And I'm sure we'll get into that because that's something I talk about a lot. Pause that, number two. One, I actually don't know the answer to this. Why, how, where did this title come up? And I heard you in an interview with our, uh, our mutual buddy, Craig Harper, and he went, fuck, like every second word with Harps is fuck, fuck, that's a good title. Jeez, I wish I'd come up with that. And, and <laughs> typical Harps, being honest, it is, is a great title. So where did the, the genesis of this idea start? Well, I actually, it, it goes back to Harper because I remember years and years and years ago when I first moved to Australia, I set up my business as a physiologist and nutritionist inside Harper's personal training, right? And one day he called me into his office and he said he had this new, new book that he was writing and he had the title and I was just like, that title is friggin' brilliant, right? And it was something about not giving a fuck. Oh, no, that, I'm getting confused. It was, a, it was about stop, stop, stop fucking around, right? So it was all about behavior change. And it was years and years before Mark Manson. And so that stuck in my head that if I was ever going to write a book, I need a title that's a bit 
catchy and in your face and and slightly confrontational and that's where that death by comfort because i talk a lot about this comfortable life that we're leading uh, and then i'm like jesus this shit is killing us the more you look into it the more you realize it is actually killing us mm-hmm. did you not think about adding the f-bomb because the subtle art of not giving a fuck i, I was in america twice recently and the bookstore and even in america like it's always got the asterisks and the u yeah, but that's right. every second book title has got fucking it so i came back to I my know. team and said all right i don't care what i write about next time but I, it's, it's got to have fucking it because everyone just picks it up off the shelf so that's did right. you think about death by you could get away with it with your irish accent death by fucking comfort <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right no a lot of people just add that in actually the people who know me would just add that in but no i thought i thought it was strong enough by itself to not need a swear mm. word. So getting soft, I agree. There's a movie that a lot of people who listen to my podcast and your podcast, The Young'uns, their parents may have watched. It was called Fight Club. Do you, do you remember mm. what year Fight Club was in? Brad Pitt, back when he was still, he was still gorgeous now, Brad, but he was absolute rock star then, got totally ripped. Do you remember yes. what year that film came out in? Jesus, you're too testing me now. I, I reckon, I, and I could be off by a bloody decade, but I reckon it would have been early 90s. Maybe. Yeah, you're like me. You have a distortion in time, but you must go back because totally. I'll run into someone and go, oh, yeah, we caught up recently. Maisie, it was 10 years ago, champ. It was <laughs> 1999. Okay. And I got the right jacket. I'm happy about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a scene where he goes to a different support group every night. Yeah, I think Monday night was parents without partners and he wasn't a parent and didn't have a partner. Tuesday night was sickle cell anemia. And I can remember, like, like, where do they come up with this shit? Sickle cell anemia. And I think way back then, so the writers, the producers of Fight Club were onto something where society was moving, is that we're starting to elevate, talk a little bit more and, and say to people, oh, are you okay? Rather than hardening up, actually mm. doing some work that stress recovery balance we're going to get into as well. And obviously yeah. you talk about death by comfort. So interesting back, we go back you know, 25 years ago, they were starting to predict that people were getting soft and having, and, and I'm not saying that there's that there are some good support clubs, absolutely. But to go to one every single night, I know you've got kids, I've got kids, I've got four. I go to work to get a break, Paul. But I hear my, my elder daughter as well talk about some of her friends and, and the conditions some of these young women think they have or they're talking about. And I, I just get to a stage where I go, look, Mickey, I love you, but with your friends, you've just got to tell them to stop. Because if you double down on this, go to multiple support groups, what we focus on grows, right? We know broaden and build theory. If you broaden and build down the spiral, you, you can hang around those people, go to support groups. I'll get off my hobby horse. So that was back in 1999. But actually, I think, and I've had similar conversations with my daughter who's 16, there is far too, we have gone, in my opinion, way too far in the coddling and the molly coddling. And that when you are constantly talking to teenagers, and especially teenage girls, but when you're, and, and we can get into that in, in, in a bit if you want to, but when you're constantly talking to them about anxiety and, and threats and trigger warnings and stuff like that, what it does is it makes them hypervigilant, right? And there's a large amount of suggestibility that's going on. And then these people are going, oh, it's my anxiety and it's this and that. No, it's fucking not. For some people it is, but for the vast majority, it is not. And, and my concern is that we are priming 
these kids and driving them into these conditions or where they think they have these conditions. And then all their friends are like, oh, poor you, blah, blah, blah. Well, it becomes a condition off. It, it oh. becomes, oh, I've got this, you've got that. Now, I've got a good one for condition you. Condition off, I like that. I, I've been doing a, what's well, a road show over six months with a government, a local government department. I'm in a talk four of five. And after talk three, I, I got called in. It was a, a Zoom meeting and I got asked the following, can you please not approach stress? like you are because some people find it really confronting and, and i just say so, that's so pause uh, background you and i are very similar i've studied exercise physiology we both studied the brain uh, your military background mine's sport background but mm. we find ourselves on similar stages now around the world and we support rather than compete because uh, while we've got a similar background that you're really going down that whole stress response and that's your PhD and, and I'm really going down mental skills. So we're like living these parallel lives with a with a niche that's supportive uh, of each other. So I, I frame that for people listening going, oh, Paul's from the military and yeah, he spent 10 days and all he ate was a freaking chicken. I've got to talk about that story. Amazing, you're in sport, you're conditioned. But I go, no, this is bullshit. The fact that I am having a conversation and I push back and they have confirmed session four, which I thought they may not. But I thought, are we really at this stage where I'm talking to a HR department about softening my message? Because mm. I've actually been brought in there because they've got real problems with workers' compensation and retention. And then when we're talking about stress, I've been asked to soften it because some people didn't like that I was saying that I think we've been cocooned. We're, we're cuddling people way too much and we need to actually build a bit of stress and a bit of bounce back and it's good for you. And I got feedback that, no, you can't do that anymore. I'm like, well... I think if you don't talk about this, your workers' compensation premiums are going to go through the roof. Absolutely. The, the, these people, they live in these utopian worlds that, that just don't exist, where we can remove all stressors from people and they will be better. Well, guess what? You remove all stressors from people, they get weaker. That is the way that the body works. And, and I use the analogy of exercise because most people get it, right? That the only way you get bigger, faster, stronger is from exposure to the stress of exercise. And, and let's be very clear. The main reason that exercise is good for you is because it is a stressor that stimulates adaptive responses to get bigger, faster, stronger. And then, as you know better than anybody, there are there's the principles of progressive overload. So you need to progressively overload the system in order to continue to stimulate adaptation. Milo goes back to the Greek god Milo. Do you know the story of Milo? No. I, I told this to some of our players at Manly a couple of weeks ago. So the, the story goes, like I'm talking about yeah, thousands oh, is of this, years ago. Is this the pushing up the hill of the boulder? Milo or is that a different had a calf. And he was doing squats. Uh, you know, I talk about doing big lifting. So he was doing squats and as the calf grew, progressive overload, Milo kept doing ah. squats. So he got progressive overload, but he did what we teach all of our elite athletes, PT, stress, the system, and then recover and recharge. Recover. You bounce yeah. back progressive overload. So even way, way, way back, uh, ancient Greeks knew around they didn't have the same science or they didn't have whoop bands and they weren't doing all this physiological testing, but you stress the system and you recover. Nothing's changed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely nothing's changed. And then, as we know from exercise, you remove the stimulus, you remove the stress, there is a pretty rapid detraining effect, right? Now, that um, applies across the board. Our stress response system 
it doesn't really differentiate very much. There are some intricacies, but but at a general level, it doesn't really differentiate between the different types of stressors. And this is this cross-stressor hypothesis, not cross-dresser. That's what I used to do in the military. But this cross-stressor that if you be- expose yourself to stress in one domain, you can actually increase your ability to handle stress in another domain. There's a club for that on Thursday nights on Mornington Peninsula as well. <laughs> In contact with Carlotta, but we digress. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? In, in the military, you learned that. I've learned that in sports. Still, like, yeah, you, you, you adapt, but the principles are still the same. And then you look at modern life, we've taken it out. And, and, and you, you talk about, I love the story about the Hadza. You, know, you talk of, that they are the last of the hunter gatherer tribe. So tell us about that. Yes. So so the Hadza, they live in Tanzania and East Africa and 90% of all the food that they eat, they still get from hunting and gathering. So this is the best, studying the Hadza is the best insight into what our genome is actually built for. And the Hadza, so the bunch of Harvard researchers went and they studied them and they studied them over a year and they did four two-week periods over the year and they spread them out because they wanted to see how much they move in the wet season and the dry season. They put step counters on them and heart rate monitors on them as well. And they did everybody from young people age 16 up to, I think it was 55 or 60 or something like that. And they find that Hadza women on average take about 13, 13 and a half thousand steps a day. Hadza men, 18 and a half thousand steps a day. The average Australian, 5,000 steps a day. Now, not only did they, they, the importance was heart rate monitors. And this is, this is key. This is why no government guidelines uh, around physical activity talk about steps because whether you're walking really slowly or doing interval sprinting in those steps is very, very different outcomes, right? So they talk about moderate to vigorous physical activity. And most people, I'm uh, just constantly shocked how few people know the government guidelines, right? So just for those who don't know, it's 150 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity a week or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous or a combination thereof, right? That MVPA, moderate to vigorous physical activity. And we talk about some strength training, right? Now, the Hadza do 135 minutes of moderate to vigorous every single day every day yeah. 945 a week that is about seven times the average australian that's oh, too much back off you're going to get yeah. injured <laughs> yeah, go yeah, to yeah, the yeah. sick bay we'll put a you'll we'll put a clay oh, I, i'm being facetious but yeah they've built this into their tribe I, I, that's why i loved reading that and, and i heard you talking about this on abc nightlife as well yeah and and, and here's the thing Exercise, and I talk about this massive study done by uh, Sultan, who's one of the top exercise physiologists, that exercise can prevent or treat 26 of the most common chronic diseases. And we know now if exercise is medicine, which it has to be, can you imagine if the pharmaceutical industry produced a pill that could treat or prevent 26 of the most common chronic diseases? Like how much would it sell? They sell billions of dollars a year in SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for depression that are really not effective at all, and particularly in the long term. So imagine one pill that could prevent or treat proven 
26 chronic diseases. Would the pharmaceutical companies want to come up with one pill? No, absolutely because not. It's a bad business model. It's a bad business model because then totally. you look at the SSRIs and then you look at the, the little uh, tablets for male performance, right, from Vi- Viagra to all the different compounds of that. And so much of that. So if, if a guy's listening to this going, what are these two going on about? Well, if you exercise regularly and build a bit of discomfort, you are going to wake up of a morning with a kickstand. Yes, indeed. Indeed, they're nicely put. But here's the thing. If we view exercise as medicine, we now know the ingredients. And the ingredients are these things called myokines. And I refer to them as magical myokines. So they are messenger molecules that are a type of cytokine. People had never heard of cytokines before COVID. And then the cytokine storm, right? So they are messenger molecules, but myokines inside the muscle, they help your muscles get bigger, faster, stronger. We now know they spill out of the muscle, they get into your bloodstream, and they have an impact on all of our target organs and our organ systems. So they improve your immune system function, your stress response system function. They improve the health of your entire gastrointestinal tract, how your pancreas secretes insulin, how your liver disposes of glucose. They remodel bone and throughout your life and your, your, your whole blood vessels. But in the brain, they do their finest work. And there's a myokine in the brain called BDNF that helps you to grow new brain cells and protect it against damage. Oh, right? I was wondering if we get to brain-derived neurotrophic factor. This, this is like heaven for me. Wiz is looking at me just shaking his head going, you two losers using all these big words. But you take away the big words, everything you're saying, there's this chemical compound in the body that either cures or reduces the risk of 26 different conditions that we're using medication for. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. It's crazy. And, and, and it's not just, it's not a compound that we have now identified more than 600 myokines. We only know what about 60 of them do. So here's the, the analogy that I use to people. So let's take a step back. And when you think of muscle mass, it is pretty common that the average 75 year old will have lost 50% of their peak muscle mass from their 20s. This is like you start in your 20s with a pill, the best pill that has ever been produced for preventing chronic disease. And every decade, we're going to take a bit away. And by the time you get to 70, you're on half a dose in the, in your 70s, right? And this is why you look at, at muscle mass is predictive of longevity, as is our cardiorespiratory fitness. They are the two biggest predictors of longevity. There's all these people out here spending all this friggin' money on NMN and NR and sperm and all of these like like longevity factors that are not yet proven and they're sitting on their fucking arses, so, right? So I'm I like, hear that get all off the your arse and move. <laughs> yeah. And you'd be the same. You're in a workshop, especially at the pointy end. Uh, and they've listened to David Sinclair. And shout out to yes. David. I, I do like his work. And I, I do believe if you do the fundamental basics, move, eat well, rest, sleep properly, have that stress recovery, bit of passion in your life or purpose, social cohesion, a bit of fun. Yeah, then add everything else on. But Absolutely. I'll, Get I'll, the I'll, fundamentals right, then add in the one percenters. Don't just buy, spend all your money on this stuff and go, it's all right, I'll sit on my arse, uh, I won't exercise, I'll drink like a gladiator and I'll eat shit food, but I'll take this pill and oh, I'll but be if I fine. take a hack, oh, if you want to get me pissed, talk about the word hack. Hey, uh, let's get out of the conversation for a while because there's a risk at the moment. Some people are listening to this going to ball blokes who've got a background in fitness and physiology and military and sport and whatever. I don't get it. 
I have never been connected to exercise or exercise and I don't get on. So yeah, my kind, cytokines, you're up yours. I just don't sing from the same hymn book. Mm. How do you approach that? And, and I'll give you a kicker. You light up when you talk about this. We get excited. You know, we've got to put a timer on it because we'll have a two and a half hour podcast. It'll be like a Joe Rogan. Be nice to have Joe Rogan's download figures as well. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> but how, how do we start to change the message and, and get it out there? Go to the first question and then the second one, bigger one. Okay, so, so here's the way I like to position the message. So in my book, I talk about a research study produced in, in, in JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, of 122,000 people who underwent stress testing, ECG stress testing, and got their VO2 max. And then they followed them for a period of 14 years and saw who died over the next 14 years. So they were middle-aged, they were about our age at the time. and Early 40s. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking biological age, right? Yes, biological yeah, age. Good. And so they followed them. And what they found is that there was a dose response in terms of death rate and, and fitness. So the people who were elite VO2 max had a more, let's whip it around. Those who were low, the lowest group of VO2 max had a, a risk, a hazard ratio for death of 5.04. So that means that they were 404% more likely to die over the next 14 years than the people who were of elite fitness. And for every group that they moved up in terms of your fitness, there was a, a protective effect. The biggest message that comes out of this is that moving from low levels of fitness to below average, right? Which as me and you know, Anybody who's listening to this who goes, I've never exercised in my life, we would go friggin' awesome because your window of adaptation is huge. Like me and me and you could do anything with those people and look like superstars because their fitness would rocket very, very quickly. They would reduce their death risk by 95% just from moving from the lowest category to below average, right? That is absolutely massive. And that is the message that we need to give to people that every bit counts. And I also talk to people about the power of little movement snacks that I've been banging on for years about. And now recent research has come out and showing that doing brief bursts of exercise from 30 seconds to two minutes has a significant impact on your longevity. So it's don't think that I have to go to the gym to do some exercise, right? You can be in doing some work at home get up, sprint on the spot for 30 seconds, run up and down the stairs five times, do some kettlebell well, sweep. Get outside. Do some squats. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You get into nature and you get the, the double kicker, triple kicker, or do it to with someone else. Totally. But the point is every single little thing that you do is going to have a big effect. And if the lower down you are on that, the bigger impact that little stuff actually has, right? So the likes of me and you who are, who are pretty damn fit, for us to improve by 10%, is a shitload of work. For these guys to improve by 10%, it's not very much at all, right? The, 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 the plasticity of the human body is amazing. So I think that's the message that we need to give to people is that every little bit counts no matter where you are on the continuum. I've been using something uh, lately, you like this one, I've been saying to people in wider groups, you got to take your meds and two thirds mm. of the audience go, oh yeah, I do. No, no, no. Take your minimum effective dose and, and for exercise. So let, let's interpret what PT has just said about VO2 max, volume of oxygen per milligram per kilogram 
uh, each minute. So what it basically means is how much oxygen you're pushing through your body. How do you increase your VO2 max? You get your heart rate up and do interval training. It's as yep. simple as that. So if Absolutely. you are sedentary, walking upstairs is going to increase your VO2 max. If you're a marathon runner, don't listen. Come back and you know, talk about balance and other stuff. You know, you're on you're on your path. And then strength training. Oh, I see those bodybuilders, Paul, or those females that should change their name to Jeffrey. Well, a lot of the women you see in those old body mags, they probably are Jeffrey. They've taken that much. They're on steroids. They're on steroids. It's for not sure. natural. But for, for women and men to do regular, and I've heard you talk about this and we've got uh, same research backing, but also research from the archives, academia, but also, you know, look at you, living, breathing, practicing this on yourself and with thousands of people each year. Just lift resistance. Mm. I don't like going to the gym. Join CrossFit. Get outside with a group of people. Get some sunshine. It's too cold in Melbourne. Bullshit. Move to Finland. Like you, hear, cold. You, know, you hear all Stop these cold reasons. Yeah. But double, double down on those two factors, what Paul just said. Bring some interval training into your week, every week, and lift if you can, heavy weights, or if you're just starting somewhere, that's it. As I say, Andre, lift heavy shit. Mm. And that becomes more important as you get older, right? That's the big message, right? So me and you, I think you've now turned 50, haven't you? I'm I'm very proudly 51, approaching 52. However, what we know is it's more important for me and you to do resistance training than it is the young bucks who are in their 20s in the gym who are the ones who do the resistance training, right? Why is that? Because you lose fast twitch muscle fibers first. They're the ones that atrophy. And in fact, the recent research shows they turn into type one, which is slow twitch. Why is that important? Why do we need those powerful fast twitch fibers? Because if you go to trip over, regaining your foot or sticking your hand out, that requires those fast twitch fibers. So when we lose those, we're more susceptible to falls. If you're in your 60s and you fall and break your hip, you got a 50% chance of being dead within the next five years. It is the seventh biggest killer of people at 65. It's the fifth biggest killer of people at 75, right? And the other thing is preserving that muscle means you've got more myokines. You've got more of the magic pill to ward off chronic diseases. So I think we need to change the conversation, particularly as people get older, from losing fat to gaining muscle. There's not enough about that. Gain muscle, get fit, cardiovascular. I, I like that. And I, I went through a big shift in my early 40s because I've been a middle distance background yes. through the Institute of Sport. I was a car Racing pig. snake. Racing, Racing snake. snake. Yeah. And look, I look at photos back when I was 25 and I'm a snake with legs. Terrible. I look older than I am now. But I went through a real shift and Dr. Paul Batman helped oh, me yep. get the research on this. Paul I think Australia's leading, one of the world's leading exercise physiologists. Paul had a, a bypass in his 50s and he'd been really fit. And he looked at a lot of his mates he'd run with at St. George Running Club. And a m- number of those were fit cardio, but they'd had heart attacks. So when he mm. really went down the rabbit hole, it yep. was the thinning of the endothelial lines. Yeah. And and a chronic cardio, which Paul calls it. And I, I looked at that and went, yeah, look at a number of my running mates. I don't think many of them listen to this, who've just cycled, and they look like they need a blanket and a cup of soup. They look mm. old and homeless em- em- because emaciated. they're emaciated. So that, that muscle mass is a big thing. For the other reason, I'll just do this for anyone who's watching, it's for your ass because you know, when you do squats and everything, you see a lot of men and they just, they've got the duck ass and then their legs mm. 
externally rotators well because they've got the really tight rotators and they're yeah. wobbling along and then you add tight hip flexors to that, everything changes. So you get mm. that foot placement, strengthen the glutes, women as well, your whole posture changes. Absolutely. And, and, and it's not just your posture, it, it, your biology changes. That's the key thing. And, and, and this is what we're now seeing, as you said, is that those who've done chronic large amounts of cardio actually weaken their hearts over time. So there's this, there's this hormetic curve. Again, we're too, too little, really bad for you. You start doing some, good for you. You do more, awesome. But then the curve starts to come down and there's a point where you lose the benefits. Now, that's a lot of volume where you lose it. But I say to people, if you run a marathon or you want to do a triathlon, do it, tick a box, do it maybe a couple of times and then do something else because that chronic endurance training really isn't ideal. And, and, and it is in combination with the diet that's needed to support that. And this whole idea, who's the guy, the South African guy? Um, Tim uh, Noakes. Professor Tim, no Tim, Tim Noakes. Noakes. I nearly did a PhD with. Oh, really? Put his hand up, the lore of running. Yeah, I, I almost moved to South Africa rather than Australia to do a so, PhD. Wait, 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 wait. Everyone else can switch off. He's God, like in in sport, like Noakes was the, God. the Bible as far as all of his books around running. What I really like about what he's done, he's come out and said, apologize, I've probably created more type 2 diabetes than anyone else because we had all these endurance athletes sipping on gel and it's totally stuffed up the insulin response. Drinking sugar drinks and he said, you cannot outrun a bad diet. Mm. So you were going to do your PhD with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very, very close. I nearly moved to Cape Town. And then last minute, we decided, no, look, we're going to go to Australia. So there you go. But yes, he, he is a guru. And he has now come out and gone, actually, I was wrong. One of the few scientists who would come out and go, you know, the stuff that I worked on for 20, 30 years, I now realize it was wrong. I mean, that takes a lot of courage. It really, really does. So we need to listen to people like that, particularly. But respect. Total respect for someone, world leader, saying that, hey, we got it wrong. Let's let's mm. correct it. And we could talk all day about myokines and about strength yes. training and cardio. So get the minimum effective dose. If yep. people want to know what that is, you wrote a book. It's called Death by Comfort. It's a good book. It's a really good book. So ladies and gents, this is the gratuitous plug for Paul. From Professor Tim Noakes, I'm going to go to another scientist. I've got a quote for you. Uh, you can work out who this scientist was. He says, if you can't adapt, you are fucked. If you can't deal with uncertainty, you're fucked. If you can't deal with discomfort, you're fucked. If you, if you constantly need a cheer squad, if you get offended a few times a day, if you're waiting for your life to be fair, if you need a standing ovation for eating a salad, if you're waiting <laughs> for someone to fix you, solve you or save you, you are fucked. Who is that, that has to be Craig Harper. It has to be. That is freaking awesome. I think that was a <laughs> quote in reference to your wizard here giggling behind the big beard uh, to one of the uh, interviews you've had with him on his podcast, The You Project. So key factors as well, so we're not so fucked, apart from minimum effective dose on exercise. You, you mentioned food. Let's talk about that. And I, uh, I'm going to give us a timeline. Yes. Wizards, what have we got? Start the watch, five or six minutes. Five or six minutes. So give okay, me the, cool. I, Only because we could go 40 minutes on that. I want no, to get to cold water therapy. I've got some yeah. questions on that. Okay. So with food, for me, it's like religion. So there's lots of different religious practices. There are people who follow those religious practices loosely. There's people who follow them quite strongly. And then for every religion, there's a very small amount of fundamentalist extremists. And it's just like nutrition. 
different eating patterns some people loosely follow some people strictly and then you have the fundamentalist extremists and the worst are the fucking vegans and the carnivores right the two extremes right so i've just pissed off half your audience can i just ask you please don't hold back on the performance intelligence podcast it is about adapting your physical your psychological and your emotional state so mate you have full permission to just speak freely (laughs) Carry on. <laughs> okay. And look, I've got no problem with vegans. I've got mates who are vegans, but I, li- I like to take the piss out of them, right? Because they are so emotional about it. And here's my thing. And boring. You go to a dinner party and get stuck next yeah, to a yeah. vegan. Nah, How nah. do you know? They'll tell you. And if they're a vegan <laughs> triathlete, you think, oh, Dolores, Ken, thanks for the invite. I I've got a stomach problem. I've just got to go. Sorry, I'm about to vomit. Get out of there. Stuck next to a (laughs) vegan triathlete who just won their age group from, say, 54 to 57. Oh, dear. So here's the thing, right? Anybody who tells you there's one diet that we should all have is either demented, they're trying to sell you something, or they're a member of a cult. One of those three things, right? Here's my approach to nutrition. Whether you're a vegan, and, and let's be serious about it now, so there's lots of people who are, and it can be a really healthy diet and with certain supplements, but whether you're vegan, carnivore, paleo, high-fat, low-carb, low-fat, high-carb, you name it, pritkin diet, whatever, here's the big rule. Eat a low HI diet, where HI stands for human interference. It works like this. If you're looking at a piece of food, you can see it's been alive recently. It's grown off a bush, off a tree, out of the ground, or it's run around in four legs, or it's swam, and you can see that it's been minimally interfered with by humans. Eat it. It's fine. Don't worry about the bloody fat, the carbs, the protein. But if you're looking at a piece of food and you're going, Mr. Krispy Kreme Donut or Mr. Impossible Meat, I didn't see you running around on four legs, then it's in your treat foods. Right? You just reminded me about five years ago. Archie was five or six and I was trying to teach the kids about food. And I said, if it comes from an ocean, a creek, a paddock in the sky, under the ground, very similar. I think I first heard that with, God, who's the American paleo guy? He's a marathon runner. He's totally jacked in his 60s. Oh, yeah, I know the guy. I can picture him. Mark uh, um, Sissons. Sissons. Mark yeah, Sissons. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's was, it was an adaptation of his. And Archie asked me one day, he was sitting at home, he said, Dad, what does a chisel tree look like? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You know how you said we'd need to get plants and from the fishing farms and all that? I said, what does a chisel twee look like? T double E. Like, mate, there's no such thing as a chisel twee. So, human, human interference, I like that from GI, glycemic index, to, to HI. HI. And, and the emerging research is showing this is where all the damage has come. It's ultra-processed foods. So, this is a university in Brazil created the NOVA classification of foods. So you have unprocessed foods, my low HI. Then you have processed culinary ingredients, oils, salt, sugar, butter, things that you cook with. Then you have processed foods like canned fish, canned vegetables, canned fruit, cheese, yogurts, artesian breads. Okay to have a reasonable amount of that in your diet. It's the ultra-processed foods and drinks that are causing all the damage. The stuff that is created by large-scale industrial processes typically has five or more ingredients, including emulsifiers that make it feel amazing in your mouth, and flavor enhancers, preservatives, all of these things that actually destroy our metabolism. And the research shows, if you compare people to those who have 20% or less, like France, Italy, Spain, 20% or less ultra-processed foods in the diet quite typically, Increasing the amount of ultra-processed foods by 10% 
increases your risk of every single cancer and every type of cardiovascular disease by more than 10%. If you eat 50% of your calories from ultra-processed foods, right, which we do in Australia, New Zealand, UK, US, Canada. Wait, 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 say, say that again, 50%? 50% really? from ultra Mate, I kid so you So we're winning, not. We're, we're, but that's the wrong chart to be with. So you said Australia, it's New Zealand, Zealand England, England, America. And Canada. They are the worst consumers of ultra-processed foods and drinks. And right? they're all the countries that are just running a parallel port to that when you talk about the growing obesity epidemic. And diabetes, Those, right? Yeah. Uh, here, so here's the thing. 50% of your calories or more, 62% increased risk of all cause mortality. Now, do you remember there was a study that came out a number of years ago showing that eating processed meat increase your risk of colorectal cancer, one cancer, by 18%. And there was all this stuff, stop eating bacon, stop eating processed meat, and then some people went, stop eating meat, right? So it was stop eating red meat first, and then it was stop eating meat. 18% increased risk of one disease. This is a 62% increased risk of all chronic diseases. You know the really scary thing, Andrew? Recent research shows in the United States, Children and teenagers, 67% of all foods they get from ultra-processed foods, Every, or 67% of all calories they eat. So, so when someone says, what should I be looking for in a food label? Don't. Like the, the majority or the bulk of the food should from should a, not plant, have a farm, Shouldn't a tree, a creek. Yeah. Real Simple. food doesn't have ingredients. Real food is ingredients. The only healthy breakfast cereal in my mind Oats. Do you want to do a podcast? It's the cheapest one. We'll come back to oats. We don't do a podcast on that. We'll, 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 we'll share it on our respective platforms. The number one nutrition factor that is going to help you add 15 to 20 years to your life. Hi, it's Paul Absolutely. Taylor talking to Andrew Mainstay. Just eat more vegetables and don't eat processed food. All right, ladies and gents, get out of here. Have a good yep. life. That's right. That's right. And, 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 and eat anything that is unprocessed, right? Lots of fruits, lots of vegetables. Oodles of extra virgin olive oil. And this, this, this really grips my shit, right? The Australian Health Star rating has canola oil, which is a highly processed oil, at five stars, and olive oil, extra virgin olive oil. The most research-based, right? We look at the Mediterranean diet, and we know a lot of the benefits are from extra virgin olive oil, has four stars. We have an ultra-processed crappy oil getting more stars than extra virgin olive oil. He, he whizzed you. Do you want to see someone get fired up? Are you ready? You don't want to Talk to me about the Australian five-star rating, Paul Taylor, and, and your thoughts on that. Don't hold back. <laughs> it really – but you, it does my head right. Seriously, as you've talked about this, for, for anyone, most people listen to this audio – but if you see the video on this, you have gone red. Like, I, you have. Your physiology has changed. Your blood pressure has gone up. It has. <laughs> I bet it has. It has. Exactly. Watch back the video, mate. Your, your head's glowing and it's red. So talk to me first. What do you feel physiologically when, you, when, when I wind you up like that? I am very frustrated and angry about it because when, when you look at the research, Marianne DeMassi um, is a, an investigative journalist who showed that dietitians in Australia were taking money from the Australian breakfast manufacturers and to promote their products, right? And, and that is disgusting. That they should be 
just obliterated as an organization or at least have an entire leadership change and a complete rewrite of their policy. Hello, right? Kellogg's. If you've got an executive retreat and you're looking for a speaker. Paul Taylor's not your man. <laughs> don't, don't, don't book just, this guy. Just strike me I, off the I, list. I, I, so I'll let you go back in a moment. I just need to interject to allow you to bring your blood pressure down because you're about to bust a, a fuffer <laughs> valve. I got asked to speak for a large, let's say, uh, English and American tobacco company a number of years right. ago. I said no. Uh, it did not fit with my moral compass. So here's the thing, Andrew. Philip Norris bought Nestle Foods and General Foods. The tobacco companies got into big food 20 years ago in a massive way. I didn't realize that connection. And they used the same tactics. So the ISLI, I think it's called the International or ILSI, International Life Sciences Institute, is a shadowy research organization that was founded by a Coca-Cola executive that was then funded by industry. And it did a lot of the lobbying for the tobacco industry, right? And a lot of clouding of research to put uncertainty in and and big food now supports it right so they lobby governments they changed chinese government policy by lobbying the government to say because they used to be that obesity is caused by poor nutrition and lack of exercise they changed them to say it is lack of exercise that's doing it. it's nothing to do with nutrition you have nestle is in uh, i think it's three quarters of schools in south africa doing nutritional education and promoting their products like Big food is way more powerful than big tobacco. So they lobbied the government so that they could have a say in the Australian Health Star rating, right? So this is like the wolves looking after the sheep. This is why I got so irate about this and that our government is actually complicit in all of this. Like, like whatever scientists were on the board of that should absolutely have resigned long before any of that stuff got published because some of the stuff that gets four and five stars, like, like Nutrigrain, got an extra star. I think it's four or four and a half stars, right? I don't know if the wizard can look it up. But by reducing their consumption, their sugar intake from 33 grams per 100 grams down to 29 grams per 100 grams, it's still practically a third sugar, but they're four or four and a half stars, right? According to that, wizard four just, stars. just gave me four. I, I the wizard. To, we love the wizard. Uh, four love, stars. Everyone needs a wizard. I, I used to say to people, so, Iron Man. Uh, oh, yeah, keep going. So how's this? How can Nutrigrain, a highly processed cereal-based food with lots of additives and 30 grams of sugar, just under per 100 grams, be as healthy as healthy as extra virgin olive oil? What universe do these people live in? I used to say to people, Kellogg's Nutrigrain, Iron Man food. You can run yeah. all day, swim all day and paddle, but you're going to get diabetes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that's the adverts though. It's little Iron Man, right? You see the adverts and on the front, high in calcium, high in protein, all true, but doesn't say an actually great diabetes food. Because that's what it is. Let's let's call a spade a spade. We're just looking at me going, time out. I think we've we've blown our six or seven minutes. Oh, uh, we have. Yes. Let's come back. I'd I'd love to do a podcast of that. We'll come back in a couple of months and talk about that and go really deep down that rabbit hole. I I want to go deeper on that because you're a wealth of knowledge. You just go stat, 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 stat. I've actually got a question on that and then let's change channels. I've caused you a little bit of discomfort, egging you on a little bit. We want to go to the chapter. See, see I look at that as excitement. That's, ex that's, ex that's excitement yeah, for it me. Is. I, know, I love it. I love the passion. Hey, I've got a question. This is for me. I've seen you evolve 
from when we first spoke with Richard Clippen way back. I think Clippo's now in New Zealand. All right. Be 15 plus years ago. And what's your career and your growth? And you're as passionate and as lean as you were back then. But you've added a lot of the science, and it's not just there was a song in the 80s. He's blinding me with science. Did you get yes. that one in Ireland? Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, I'm not sure about that. No. No, I don't uh, think we did. Because some, some people speak, coach, present, teach, podcast, and use science. And it can be, oh, wow, really high level. But you have the kicker and you really link it in. So for, from my own perspective, how have you harnessed that? Because I really have seen you grow in that area. I don't know if anyone else has told you this, but it's not just the science, it's how you link it. So how have you used that? And also, where the hell do you find all this stuff? Do you spend hours looking for it? Yeah, so I'll answer that question in, in the two parts. So for me, I went to a lot of conferences. So when I left the military, I already had a master's in nutrition, or sorry, in exercise physiology when I joined it. Then I did a master's in nutrition in my last couple of years part-time and, and, and you know, wanted to be the, the kind of best that I could be. So I went to a lot of conferences and I remember sitting in conferences going, Jesus, these academics have got some cool shit, but my God, they're boring as bad shit. And, and they, they don't communicate the so what's particularly well. So I made a conscious decision years ago that I was going to be a pracademic, which is a made up word but that practical application of the academic research. So when I read stuff, I always have an eye on, so what? So how can the audience actually use that, right? Then I, I think when I, I've taught exercise science to personal trainers, Harps got me a gig at, at, a, at an RTO, and you really have to like take complex science and dumb it down for some people who are going through a cert four in personal training like a lot of these people aren't particularly well educated some are super well educated but it was about okay how do i make this science understandable as quickly as possible so that's the the kind of answer to that question is one of my big things is about constantly trying to be a pracademic i like that word it's good yeah, it's, it just says what it does on the tin, right? But then, yes, I read research papers all the time. Do you have a life? Like, do you and Carly and the kids, are you still running with Oscar? Or do you just go, oh, guys, dad's going to the office with all the books behind him and I'm going to double down? Or or do you have a brainiac out the back that you you give a bowl of iron grain just to no, fuel their I brain see, performance? I, I, I don't have any. I don't have anybody that does my research for me. Now, occasionally, people will flick stuff to me, which is quite cool. And I'm starting to get some podcast listeners. Actually, one flicked me an awesome study the other day. But I just do it because I'm 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 really am passionate about it. Yeah, you know? and I. Because I'm an exercise physiologist, neuroscientist, nutritionist, doing psychology, I'm interested in so many different areas. And I always look at it and go, how does that connect to some other previous knowledge that I have? So I, I kind of connect the dots a little bit. And I really enjoy, like I've got oodles and oodles of books with um, mind maps connecting research and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I get my shits and giggles. What's um, after psychology? Like if you go from nutrition... You got neuroscience, exercise, phys, psychology. Is it quantum physics? Are we going to get really <laughs> yeah, well, deep or something? Well, I do, I do like a bit of quantum physics, but it does make my head hurt. Now, I've told myself once I got my PhD that that's me done, but I know in the back of my mind that's not me done. Because, you know, when you, it's like when you stop learning, it's like when you stop exercising, right? You don't stop exercising because you grow old. You grow old because you stop exercising. And we could say the same thing for learning. Yeah. You've inspired me. And I've said this to you before. When we catch up for a nice coffee in Melbourne next time or when you're in Sydney, I've done 
do you want to get some tips? I will start my PhD in the next few years. Notice the words? Nice. Not nice. Yes, yeah. I like that. When people say I might or whatever, I say, as Yoda says, there is no try, there's only do. Yeah, I'm doing it. It's on mental skills. I've got to work yeah, out nice. what construct. But yeah, I'll get some advice. Anyway, that was a gratuitous question for me, but also a compliment back to you because I've really well, seen that evolution. And it, it it's sticky. Mm. I think people need to know the science and I often get, I've heard bits of that before. I haven't heard it all and I haven't heard it connected the way that you connect it and the so what's. So that that's my passion is about connecting the bits of research and, and making it so what, because I think behavior change is hard. It's really friggin' hard to change behavior. And particularly when we have so much temptations around and the way the brain works, is temporal discounting. So we will discount rewards that are in the future. So when people think about, hey, I'm gonna exercise, I'm gonna go to the gym, I'm gonna change my diet because I don't wanna get disease. Well, that's 20, 30 years away and your brain will discount that benefit. And then anything that's clear and present, like you walk past a cake shop or you're in the petrol station buying petrol and the stuff is right there. And as soon as you look at it, your brain releases a little bit of dopamine that says that shit tastes good, pick it up, right? So we have to have really strong ways to counter that. So I believe we need a really good understanding of the science and the why, and then connecting it to your values, right? If you want to really change behavior. But anyway, that's a completely different conversation. And I talk about that a lot in my last chapter in the book is all about behavior change. With the ritual boards, I like that as yes. well. So I think we will come back and talk about change and we'll, we'll, we'll stick on to your book. In, in post-production, we'll put a song in here. It's by Vanilla, Vanilla Ice. Ice Ice Baby. Yeah. Yeah, chapter number three is about harvesting discomfort. Mm. Now, I've been using ice. <laughs> Got to get that in the right context, right? I've been using CWT. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Cold water therapy for five or six yeah, so, years. So where, did you, did, was it not a thing when you were in your athletic days? I was it not big? spent six years in Tasmania training under the Tasmanian Institute of Sport coach, John Quinn, and we weren't talking about CWT as a collective group. You would ice for muscle injury. Back then it was rest, ice, compression, elevation. Some yes, research yes. out now shows controversially or not, depending on where you sit, that ice, and I don't think ice is the best thing now for yeah, trauma yeah, straight away. Yeah, 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 yes. But we, especially in the off season, we'd hop in the Derwent after the heavy yeah, interval training yeah. sessions, like heavy... Yes. Uh, every Tuesday morning with Gumby and Shagger, uh, <laughs> nicknames, not real names, seven by one kilometer reps, 60 to 90 seconds recovery, and we get those down to 250s towards the pony. And so it's, it, it's an out of body experience. Like we do seven one minute Ks, 90, or we might go to two minutes, uh, all averaging three or probably averaging high. 50s 250s ridiculous so it's a full-on session hard 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 and then we'd jump in the door which is bloody freezing and then yeah. everyone would just go oh like and sort of laugh about it but it's really come out now but why i started five or six years ago is was bullied into a relay swim with the english channel and i was suffering from hypothermia yeah. and really poor mental talk going this is shit every time we'd go down south from sydney at huskerson i'd just freeze and then i listened to some of the wim hof work and while I think Wim is cr crazy genius, 
the mindset link and then just saying to myself, cold water is my friend. I can do mm. this. I was having panic or I was having anxiety attacks and that's not good. Yeah. And yeah, ended up getting through the swim and I've built it into my practice. So I have cold showers, most showers. I swim throughout the year in Sydney, not cold compared to where you are in Melbourne. I think your water gets way under sort of eight or 10 degrees, uh, but I just built in and I love it. Yeah. And there's a good reason why you love it. You love it because of the impact on the neurotransmitter systems. So we know, particularly if you get into ice, but any cold water, as soon as you get into that cold water, there are neurons in your skin that detect the cold and they send a signal to the brain and the brain kicks in emergency systems, a whole body and brain-wide response to that cold, right? So it's going to upregulate your your nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system. It's going to boost adrenaline, but it's also going to boost noradrenaline, which is the kind of sister chemical of adrenaline in the brain. Now, noradrenaline is the feel-good stress chemical. It also boosts dopamine. And if you jump into an ice bath, you will get a 300 to 500% increase in dopamine and noradrenaline, right? Which is just amazing for the brain. I had one of my players at Manly play back to me last week before a trial game, uh, NRL game. He was just feeling really shitty. And he said, him and another guy, one of our senior players, I won't mention their names, I don't have approval, but they said, oh, we'll do that shit Maisie said and we'll hop in the ice bath to pump up our dopamine. And then they got in, then they got out, they sent me a text, our dopamine's pumped. And I had a bit of a laugh. I thought, oh, it's great. They're actually cottoning onto that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and you feel great. But I'm, I'm curious the research on this because I did a podcast recently with Dino Gladstone and I, I think Dino is arguably Australia's leading expert in cold water therapy. Dino has trained with Wim Hof, climbed mountains in Poland with him. I'll connect you with Dino. Get him on your podcast. He's great. Yeah, we'll do. Uh, yeah, he's absolutely. a Bondi Rescue lifeguard as well. Dino uh, has been on Bondi Rescue for 13 or 14 years, ever since they first started. Great guy. I bring him into any sporting team I work with. I've had him work with me at Combank, with the Australian Navy. Everyone loves the work that they do with Dino. We did a podcast and, and we looked at the science of breath work and it's robust. Yeah, yes. We called the podcast though, Paul, the science of breath work and the art of CWT, yeah. cold water therapy, because I'm not sure whether the science is not there or the science hasn't caught up yet, or am I maybe, are we not looking in the right spot? The, look, it is slowly emerging. So there's there's a fair bit of science in, in animal studies. There is some science now in, in human studies. Professor Mike Tipton has, has led a fair bit of that. I mean, he did a really cool study where they took a bunch of cyclists. They trained them. They did a performance ride. And then they repeated that performance ride in hypoxic conditions, so low oxygen. So they had a mask on, so there's low oxygen. And as you can imagine, their stress hormones increased dramatically in the low oxygen and their performance reduced. And then he did this beautiful experiment where he got half of them submerged in cold water. And so I think it was 10 degrees. I can't remember how many minutes it was, maybe less than 10 minutes, but he did it several times that day because he has worked out what the dose is for that that cold water adaptation the other half went into warm water now that's a beautifully designed experiment because 
there could be a placebo effect of just getting in water, right? So they did, those guys did the warm water, then they repeated the study and the cold water group actually brought their performance back up to original levels, had much less stress hormones. The warm water group, same thing, reduced performance, higher increase in stress hormones. So that was one of the first studies to show a crossover effect, that if you train the nervous system, to adapt to cold, it can adapt to another stress, in this case, hypoxia. So there is other research that shows that people who are physically fit handle psychological stress better, right? So exposed to a 30 minute stress battery, but that, so that's the cross transfer effect. Now, a very recent study, which I'm gonna talk about in my Wisdom Wednesday, probably this week, one of my listeners sent it through to me. They did a really cool study and I haven't dug it. I've just read the abstract and a quick flick through it, but basically they put people in cold water. Now this was 20 degrees, which I thought was too warm because Mike Tipton uh, 20s, says- 20 is not, that's nice. Yeah, that, that, that's quite warm, but they were in it for quite a few minutes. So Mike seems to think, Mike Tipton seems to think that about 15 degrees is the trigger for the cold water shock, which is a lot of the benefits come from that. So they were in a bit longer, so that might have had it. I'd love to see them in colder, but they MRI'd their brains pre and post, and they had a control group. So it was a beautiful study, and they showed changes in connectivity between the frontal lobes and the parietal lobes or parietal lobes, whatever way you want to pronounce it. Parietal lobe and frontal lobe communication is really important around mood. And we see changes in that with depression. We are now seeing, and Mike Tipton was involved in, in one of the case reports of this lady with severe treatment resistant depression, who nothing was working. She came to Mike and wanted to do cold exposure. So they did a, a proper case report on her and she got cured of her depression. And Mike said, and there's another doctor who's involved in this, in the UK during lockdown, cold water swimming went through the roof. Oh, it, right? did, it did here. Cause and it did here and, and it did down Melbourne here. As well. Everyone's swimming in the bay and here, at, yep. well, my local area, everyone's swimming at Manly to Shelley Beach or at Balmoral. And literally there's a place at Balmoral now they call the highway because a lot of those people haven't gone back to the pool because they realise the salt water, the sun, just yeah. beautiful way to start your day. It's it's hectic in the water there. So yeah, we, we saw a huge spike and it's continued. But swimming yeah, I, in Britain... That's cold water. That, 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 that's different gravy, right? But he said that anecdotally, they just surveyed people, so it wasn't a proper research study, but so many people saying, my anxiety has either resolved or got better, or my depression has either resolved or got better, right? And there's more and more evidence emerging around that. Now, all other experiments in animals, there's this amazing study that was published in the journal Cell, which is one of the top journals, where they took a bunch of mice or rats, I can't remember which, which they had bred to develop MS, multiple sclerosis, which is a an autoimmune condition that attacks the nervous system and particularly the lining of the nerves called the myelin sheath. So think of people of, of like any charger or any cord that you have, it's like the plastic that's around it. Now that's really important for the nervous system to operate well. And so when that gets eroded in MS, people fall apart from a nervous system perspective. So they took these rats, bred them to have MS and then half of them, they made them do forced cold water swimming. And they had this hypothesis and little the hypothesis- Goggles and little rat, was, little, yes. little rat trunks. <laughs> Indeed. And a bit of Wim Hof breathing before they get in. But what they found, regrowing of the myelin sheath 
in the mice that were did the cold water swimming. That's the first time that's ever been seen. Now, they hypothesized, and, and I love this hypothesis, an autoimmune condition is really expensive to run. So your immune system is so expensive to run. That's why when you get a virus, your, your liver will release acute phase proteins and acute phase reactants that say, Andrew, go and lie down in your cave. That's why you feel shit and you have no energy in a virus. It's not the virus. It's the immune system's response that then triggers the liver to release these and saps your energy, right? So it's because it's expensive to run. So when you have an autoimmune attack, right, it is really expensive metabolically. So they hypothesized, we throw them in cold water, that now the brain has got two big expensive systems running and it cannot run both of them so it has to prioritize and the brain is always going to prioritize survival right so this for the first time is really strong evidence to the approach that people were reporting anecdotally and a lot of vim hoffers i know have said that their autoimmune conditions have been significantly improved from that cold exposure and the breathing, I think the breathing comes into it. There's a lot but, of science but, but behind the to, breathing. But just to click on that, I think that's where Dr. Tom, when he looked at this, saw the gaps, how they haven't caught up yet. Because Can you flick me some of those studies? Because you did yes, all the yeah, process. Uh, uh, it would be happy, great to see. Happy to. But to go from myelin sheaf with rats to humans, it's, it's, a, it's a big jump. It's a, it, it, it is a big jump. Uh, so when you look at, and I often talk about this, right? When you look at animal studies, they don't always translate into humans. But when we have the same systems that are present in both, and there is a plausible biological mechanism, then you can have a little bit more confidence. Now, obviously, this study needs to be repeated in humans, and, and we need more of these studies, which is hard to do because research is expensive to do, right? And I'm actually hoping to do for my next PhD an element of this in my next PhD experiment. But So you're, you're after the PhD you're doing? or the, No, 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 this one, this one, <laughs> gotcha. this one. But I think that there is enough emerging evidence and, and strong, robust evidence in animals with a clearly delinear, defined biological mechanism that is present in humans to say, you know what, I'm going to give this a crack. And that's why I've had a cold shower every day for the last seven years. And, and I started, for those who are thinking of starting it, I started doing it going, I'm going to do it four days a week. And I'd find I'd get in a Monday and I'd be in the shower and I'd go, right, I tend to turn it cold. And this little voice would go, hold on a minute, it's Monday. You only need to do it four days a week. You don't have to do it today. And it became a willpower fight. So I just said, make it a rule. Every time I have a shower, if I have a shower, then I turn it to cold for the last 30 seconds. So let's park the science on cold for now. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm going to really look into Mike Tipton's work. That sounds fascinating. His yeah, work around cool. that. So if you can point me in that direction. And, yeah, I'll, and, I'll flick you the papers. Yeah. yeah. And from my end, I don't need the science on it. It's nice to have it and have more, but I know I feel good when I do cold. Yeah. And I know, like you, have got thousands of people having cold showers and jumping mm. in the ocean during winter and going, I feel alive. Is a placebo effect? You, you mentioned the effect on the nervous system. Is there a lot of stuff happening? I don't really care because I'm going to keep doing it because it makes me feel bloody good. Tell me Absolutely. about your practice, your cold water therapy practice, what does an average week look like for you? And then can we roll that into, if you stack everything in your book, Death by Comfort, ladies and gentlemen, go get yourselves a copy. 
how would you build in some of the nutrition principles and the exercise and the resistance training, interval training, some of the recovery, stress activation mechanics, and you got cold water therapy. I'm actually really curious to hear what your week looks like. And I'm asking that, one, curious, because I have a construct that I try and fit all my stuff in, and I'm wondering how similar are our lives on that. Two is I, I want to give people a framework to pull all this stuff together. Yep. So question number one, yeah. what does your cold water practice look like? My cold water practice habitually is 30 seconds minimum of a cold shower at the end of my normal shower. And and when it's winter, I get into either my cold swimming pool or go down with my mates. We used to go once a week in winter and get into the bay, which is friggin' cold down here. And we do it for 10 minutes and laugh at each other. Um, and, and that was and your laugh gets higher pitched the more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And then, and, then I, and it was it's like always at about eight minutes, I would start shaking like a shiting whippet, as we would say in Ireland, right? And actually, Mike said to me, "You don't need to go that far." And in fact, you've probably gone too far if you're starting to shiver. Now we were just standing in there laughing at each other. You know, if you're swimming, you can probably stay in a little bit longer, right? So, so that's generally what I do. And then, and winter, I love it because we now have a sauna right beside our pool get out of the sauna into the freezing cold swimming pool back into the sauna back into the pool i love that contrast hot and cold like that is just you feel amazing after that so that'd be it but on a general basis i will generally go for a run in the morning with my dogs not not far just one or two k's and then i'll do a workout and and i i'm doing a lot of workouts now with my little guy oscar and generally my workouts are short high intensity because i'm time poor so i will generally do four rounds of seven or eight exercises so it's all resistance training but it's high intensity resistance training so we work for 30 seconds recover for 10 every day so if you look at monday tuesday you run two or three k then you do the short sharp high load weights Yes, yeah, but but I've started now on a couple of those days doing more of the traditional strength training. Reason being, looking at my DEXA scans is I have lost significant amount of muscle, right? And that plays into one other change that I've made, and there's a whole podcast in this, is that I'm giving a break to intermittent fasting just because I have too well. lost fat, but I've lost a significant amount of muscle and I do not want to lose any more muscle in my 50s. So I've stopped that. I've made one sacrifice around ultra processed food. That is that I'm now taking a protein shake using grass fed whey protein at, with some kefir at night um, before I go to bed, which I traditionally would not. I'd eat dinner at seven o'clock and not eat until late the next morning. But I'm on just a short phase of, of build that I'm going to go and repeat the DEXA scan just to have a look. So it's all about experiments, right? Different people react differently to fasting and stuff like that. I right? do DEXA every six months. And for anyone who I think everyone it, should do it. Yeah, yeah. Everybody should do I it. I get my hypos of high performance to do it as well. Because when someone said, oh, I did this body scan, fat scan, like, okay, that's nice. It but if you're dehydrated, here we go. Okay, round him up again. Yeah, it's bullshit. To get it properly, you get bone density, you get lean body mass, and you get fat mass, and you get visceral fat. There is nothing yeah. worse as a guy when you think you're doing okay, and you get this report back, and it shows all this sludge on your guts. It's a really yeah. good metric to get you off your ass to lift weights, do some interval training, and drink less beer. 
Yeah, and I mean, you need data. You need to be, particularly as you get into your 50s especially, but I would definitely be starting in my 40s, of looking at your muscle mass and, and your ALMI and your FFMI, so your fat-free mass index and appendicular lean mass index. So one is overall, and, and the other one's arms and legs. And, and you can then... How am, how am I going on charts? And how, what is my trend? Because you really do not want to be losing significant amounts of muscle as you head into your 50s and your 60s. Because of the research now is saying, you know, you've heard these people say, my metabolism is slowing. That's why I'm putting on weight. As you get older, your metabolism slows. It's bullshit. You drink too much, eat too much, don't exercise. And also, we just don't put enough emphasis. Like everyone talks about osteoporosis and bone density. Yeah, it's yeah. important. Missing, absolute missing piece on this. And you said it's the second most influential factor on longevity. So if you want to live a long, healthy, prosperous life, increase muscle mass. So yeah, I build this in, Dr. Tom and I do with our clients now to understand yeah. their muscle mass. So interesting for you though, you teach, preach, you've done all this. So getting that DEXA, you went, oh, the fasting, everything you're doing is working a bit too well. And, and, you, and that's why you need data. That's why you got to have data. Your that's body why the, shape, I imagine when you were a young fella, you were the classic skinny ectomorph. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm definitely that shape. So it is harder for me to put on muscle um, you know, it, it is a fight for me to put on muscle. I'm not that that particular type. You have those those mesomorphs who, who just look at weights and they put on muscles, right? You think Fijians, Polynesians, Maori guys, you know, Jesus Christ, they get big real quick. Everybody needs data. And that's why I think a DEXA scan, and they're not that expensive. They're like a hundred bucks or something like that. I used to measure up guys when I'm in Sydney. There's different guys down here. Actually, Victorian government and I, has put a blocker on people using DEXs for, for that. So you've got to go and get a referral and it's bullshit. But anyway, I think data and you got to track it and you got to look at those numbers because your 50s is the last chance saloon for putting on muscle. So that big study I talked about, um, or I was just about to talk about on metabolism and people say, my metabolism gets lower. People, their metabolism does, but it's all explained by losses of muscle mass. So when they normalize for the amount of muscle mass, people in their 40s and 50s have got no slower of metabolism than people in their 20s. Yes, it is slower, but it's only slower because you've lost muscle mass, because you've stopped or reduced your exercise, and you're drinking more alcohol, blah, 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 blah. But when you hit 60s, it does start to drop off. So that means you've just got to work harder. And that's the, that's the bad news, but that's the reality, right? As you get older, you got to work harder. People who say act your age, punch them in the face. <laughs> uh, Matt O'Neill, who I haven't seen for years as a nutritionist. Oh, yeah, I know yeah. Matt. Matt yeah. He used Good to have a, a talk, which was eat and move your age. And I did a talk with Matt through the UK many years ago. I don't know how we got into this stupid song, eat and move your age, eat and move your age, <laughs> eat and move your age, and if you don't, you're fucked. <laughs> that was Matt's song. He didn't do that on stage. But yeah, don't act your age. Like when you're 55, train like a 30-year-old. So, absolutely. So data, absolutely. And people that we work with, especially in the you know, 
white collar or the professional services banking, everyone has metrics. So they know quarterly yep. updates, they know yep. their share portfolio, they know the bested shares, blah, blah, blah. Metrics you should have individually is your resting heart rate. I think daily steps mm. is a good one. Yep. Exercise minutes yep. in intensity. Yep. Agreed. Uh, wearable yep. tech now, I'd go VO2 max. You can add yep. heart rate variability, but I think HRV is a nice one when you've got everything else in. Don't go too technical first. And then get a DEXA. If you're really serious about this, a couple of times a year, get the KPIs for your body to show how you're aging, exactly like Paul writes about this, talks about this leading expert on this, but you've actually gone, hey, I'm losing a bit too much muscle. I yeah. need to back off maybe on some of the muscle or the catabolic activities, add some protein, which most men, Paul, post 40, 45, I think need to supplement protein if they want to build muscle. Look, I actually, what, what has been shown, I did a, a podcast with Professor Don Lehman, who's one of the world leaders in protein metabolism, and, and he shows, and uh, lots of other labs have, have actually shown this, as you get older, your ability to digest and utilize protein declines. So as you get older, you need more protein. What happens as you get as, as people get older generally, they eat less protein. Mm. So that incre increases the rate of loss of muscle mass. So I um, I have significantly upped my protein, and I'm, so I'm going to do a little experiment. And how, I'm how many grams per kilogram? You need to be having about two grams per kilogram per day. That, that, so that's a lot because most – well, the studies vary. If, if I'm yeah. working with someone who needs to get jacked, like if it's athletes, they'll be up two-plus yeah. grams per kilogram. I tend to hold people around at least one and a half, and I find most people are getting way, way, way below one. In fact, let's say the average 85, 90-kilogram male might be getting 50 to 60 grams of protein, nowhere near enough to maintain lean body mass. Uh, and we backload it. We backload it. We get most of it at dinner. Most people are walking out front. So let's think about this. You go to bed, you maybe eat seven, eight o'clock, and then you fast. And even if people aren't doing intermittent fasting, they might have breakfast at eight o'clock. Often there's nowhere near enough protein. So you're still in a catabolic state until you hit lunchtime, right? And and we backload our protein onto dinner. And what Don Lehman said, and I'm, I'm a big fan of this, is you need more at breakfast, right? So you, you've got to aim for 0.4 to 0.5 grams per kilograms of protein at breakfast. Breakfast cereal and toast does not friggin' cut it. It doesn't come anywhere close to that, right? Because if you think about it, you can go for decades without any carbohydrate. It's not. It's a non-essential nutrient. Ketosis. Yeah. So you start going, yeah, if you go for weeks without fat, you'll start to break down. You go for a day without protein, your body starts to catabolize itself. So this is like the, the analogy I learned at uni all those years ago is you got a sink of amino acids. The tap is running. That's your intake from diet, but the plug's out. So you need a constant source coming in because what happens at night, your organs still need amino acids. Amino acids are the basic building blocks of life. Your organs need a constant supply of amino acids. So when that has dropped at night, whenever you're, you're sleeping because you haven't eaten for hours and hours and hours, you break down muscle to recycle those amino acids, right? That is the key thing. And that, as you age, is bad, bad juju. So that's why I'm running a little experiment and just taking a protein shake and I'm taking it with kefir at night and then I'm making sure I'm getting a lot of protein at breakfast in the morning. I love your passion and the 
the dance between the exercise physiologist, the neuroscientist, the psychologist, and the emerging PhD in psychology comes in. Let's park that baby. Come back to your week. I distracted you. You mentioned oh, the yes, four-letter word, the four-letter word for us, DEXA, and we just went down the rabbit yes, hole. Yes, yes, yes. So you run two or three kilometers most days. So you, you're waking up the engine, a little bit of interval training for the VO2 max. Yeah. And I think it's important getting out in the morning early. That early morning sunlight, sunlight is important for resetting your circadian rhythm, yeah. right? So then I'll do a workout. If I got time, I'll have a sauna after the workout. And, you know, very privileged to be able to have a sauna, but you get a boost in growth hormone and stuff like that when you have the, have the sauna. And then when I'm at work, if I'm at home, I will have lots of little movement snack breaks. So I've got kettlebells and I've got club bells right beside my desk. And I've actually got a friggin' dips thing just over here. Which actually, can you see, you see yeah. my dips thing? I thought, I, thought, I thought that was a walker getting ready for 60. <laughs> Easy, right? <laughs> um, so that I can just jump up and just do a little bit of um, a movement snack and then, and so, then so back th in. Th that's interesting. And, and this is one of my takeouts from today. I'm going to start doing more movement snacks. So I went to the gym this morning. I exercise every day. I, if I don't, I go stir crazy and my mm. family and staff tell me. I was thinking about you this morning. I was semi-naked and I was hot and sweaty. And I was really, really hot. And do you want me to just leave it there or will I? Yeah, yeah. you're going to spoil it by saying you're in the sauna, aren't you? I was in the sauna. It was my hormesis super stack that I took out of yes. our last conversation on the back end of a 16-hour fast, lifting heavy weights and yeah. sitting in the sauna for 15 to 20 minutes, about 80 to 100 degrees, Dr. Andrew Huberman tells us. Beautiful. Getting yep. a massive spike. So I was actually thinking of you, I was, about our conversation, thinking – wonder what I'll take out of today. That is my big takeout is the exercise snacking, not just doing the big sessions. So Wiz, yeah. we're going to start doing this together, mate. We're going to start doing some push-ups and chin-ups and lunges and Wiz is going to tell you to get stuff. That, that's easy for everyone to do. <laughs> but, uh, Wiz is left. Can... Hey, Wiz, 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 mate, come back, come back. This is the beauty. Anybody can do a 30-second to a minute movement snack and, and, and lots of them throughout the day. But for me, the thing is you've got to put triggers around the place because of human behavior. So I've got my ritual board right here, right? So I'm, I'm triggered to actually do it and tick it off. I've got my kettlebells there. I've got the dips machine there. There's a frigging rowing machine in our kitchen now. And there's kettlebells littered all around the house. Just so you walk past, you see it. Oh, I'll just lift up and I'll do some kettle club bells or whatever it may be. So having lots of those triggers is really, really important to just get you to do the behavior over and over again. Hey, right? Carol, Paul and Carly have invited us over their house on Sunday for a barbecue. Frank says, oh, you can get stuffed. Every time we go there, he makes us do kettlebells. <laughs> I just want to sit there and drink beer with the lad. Oh, don't you worry. I have those days too. Good. I know you do. Good. So revving the engine, you're doing some weights of a morning, high intensity, micro snacking. What else during the, the week? Other thing, well, I go and I, I, I train. Uh, I'm a coach for Oscar soccer team or I'm the assistant coach. So that's going out, you know, interacting with the young kids. I love that. Giving all the kids push-ups and stuff like that. And then they're getting pretty good. Oscar, by the way, just a little aside, 12 years old, 60 push-ups. Proper, proper push-ups, right? Yeah. Um, that's pretty good for a 12-year-old. Well, last but podcast, you mentioned you'd been for a run with Oscar. And he was smashing you. So Archie oh, yeah. is about a year younger than Oscar. I took him to LA two weeks ago. I was over there for. A I saw that on on yeah on Facebook. And we went for a run. We're at Griffith Observatory, which is beautiful in LA, looking out over the whole town. 
and then the Hollywood sign is across yeah. the hill and most people will take a bus and then you can walk up. And I said to Arch, like <laughs> we walked up the 2K to get there and I said to him, oh, mate, do you want to get the bus or do you want to run? And he said, Dad, don't ask me questions like that. Like I was teasing him. He said, <laughs> we're not getting the bus. That's embarrassing. So we ran. Awesome. And we ended up doing eight kilometres. So it was 2K up. It was an 8K run. It was only meant to be about six, but he said, let's take some back roads. So we went down the backside of LA up again. We're climbing up this hill and it was like it was a goat track. It was a trail. He spoke to me the whole freaking time. And and oh, I yeah. had that moment that you and I spoke about that's getting closer where the little shit is about to drop me. And I could see him surging up this hill and he's still talking to me. And I'm like, <laughs> 90 kilos, <laughs> feeling every bit of my 50 years of age. I said, Arch, mate, just shut up. Save your energy. It was so I, <laughs> I couldn't answer him. <laughs> so it's really close. The little shit's about to get me. I just know yeah, it. Yeah, he'll get you. Don't worry about that. It's coming and it's it's humbling. That's <laughs> mm, nice. It, really is. Yeah. it is nice. It is nice. It's Switching nice off them. rituals. We haven't spoken about recovery. What do you do at yes. night to switch off? So sometimes if I haven't had a sauna in the morning, I do a sauna at night. That's actually really good for, for switching off. But I will generally do some, some breath work. I will turn off the, the screens because I do like to, to work when everybody's gone, but I'll turn that off and I'll do, do some stretching. So again, we've got a TRX hanging up in our living room. So I'll use that and do a little bit of stretching and stuff like that because I want to keep this old body going. You know, I've already had a hip resurfacing, so it's important that I keep it mobile as well as pushing it hard. You have a TRX more of that. hanging up in the lounge room. Yes. You know your neighbours in the Mornington Peninsula think that's a sex wing. Probably, yes. Well, you know, it's Mount, it's Mount Eliza. There's a song about – what was the song about Mount Eliza where it was the um, the keys in the in the, in the the cup? It's a it's a famous Australian song, putting the, the car keys into the – I can't remember what I it is. I didn't realise that was Mount Eliza. It was about Mount Eliza. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So I'm just keeping the stereotype going. I love our chats and we always – talk like we can talk right we start and then look up yeah. and go wow how did that time fly i actually have to go and train some footballers we're getting oh, ready nice. for a so big what game we, coming uh, up. now what, what does football mean there because oh, proper proper football pre- is round right yeah you depending know, where you, you know football is right <laughs> when you say fuck of course the proper football is round so well if you, if you ask five billion people yeah Okay. Football is round. I'm going to the Insular Peninsula at Manly, which there's only one right. football there. It's Rugby right. League, NRL. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. nice. Which I love. And when we spoke about this last time, I'm, I'm doing a lot more in sport and, yeah, want to do more. Try and get that balance you know, between the passion work we do, keep yeah. doing some study and doing the corporate work, but it's a real love. So the final question, and then I'll go to the NRL and I'll, you can keep your round ball. Is there a question I didn't ask you or is there one other topic you wanted to bring up to really round out a conversation? Boom, 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 boom. There is nothing that springs to mind, actually. I think we covered it all. Oh, did we talk about connecting? Uh, the one thing I would say is just, I think we did t- talk a little bit about the social brain, but for me, one of the massive things, particularly for blokes our age, is that tap code that that I write about in the book that came out of the Hanoi Hilton prison camp, and and how these guys who were being tortured and in solitary confinement, you know, had this process of tapping on the walls to to get each other through and to communicate with each other, and that's really important, particularly 
as you get older, and particularly for us blokes, you know, my my, my, my Egerians, Andrew, we are the biggest risk of suicide um, because we're born in that generation where big boys don't cry and you man up, right? And it's bullshit. And a lot of men in our youthful age, because, you know, if they listen to us, we're going to get them to 130, yep. longevity and vitality. You can be in a relationship and you can still be lonely. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I think that's where a lot of this gets missed. And some of the research is now looking at this is, are you in a relationship? Yes. Do you feel connected? Because mm. often we go, oh, he's in a relationship. But if he's an island in the relationship, it's even worse yep. than being single because you, you will and people will make more of a connection if you're yep. a single guy. That's that's it. And and so it is about just reaching out, right? And if you've got your own shit sorted and you're doing really well, I say to people, just look around your little corner of the universe and think, who could use a top code conversation, right? I think that is really, really important, particularly in the today's world where we're uber busy and lots of people are communicating on social media. You cannot beat a face-to-face catch-up, right? And if you're struggling, it's about finding the courage to talk to someone. Because if we have a conversation, if I'm struggling and you you're helping me out. Oxytocin and vasopressin are released in both of our brains. It doesn't matter who's struggling and who's helping. They are the hormones of love, trust, and social bonding, but they're also very potent anti-stress chemicals. So that is really, really critical. And the research shows people who bottle stuff up get more anxiety, PTSD, depression, and, and loneliness. More of the tap code. Beautiful way to finish. I'm glad we didn't finish on processed foods. Because <laughs> my blood pressure would go up again. For people who want to find your book or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, look, you can order it on, on Booktopia, I like, because it's um, Australian, or you can order it on my website and I send you a signed copy. It's just for people who live in Australia. Overseas, it's too much hassle with customs and stuff like that. So it's either go to my meds website, mindbodybrain.com.au, and you can order it there or jump onto Booktopia. Love your work, love chatting, and uh, we're overdue for a coffee so let's organize yes, I'm, that. I'm, I'm long overdue for getting you on my podcast by the way done we'll sort that out awesome Tap good stuff back see you champ cheers mate bye hi again it's Andrew and I hope you really enjoyed that episode we would appreciate if you helped to amplify the performance intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite or purchasing one of the books I've written, including MatchFit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence.